Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Hi, I'm Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics at Ottawa University, and I'm here with my colleague, Russ McCullough, Professor of Economics, and uh, you are listening to Philosophy, Faith, and Economics. Oh boy, here we go. Yes, welcome, welcome. Uh, So uh, Justin and I are by ourselves, at least at this point. Maybe Jason will be chiming in here shortly, but we needed to get a start because it's a beautiful day in Kansas, and it's a Friday that we're doing this recording on anyway, and so we're ready to to get started on something. And so I, uh, so Russ, you recently had a paper published from at Liberty Fund titled are economists basically immoral? Lessons from Paul Hain? Yes. Yep, Hain. Hain. Okay. Yep. Now, I know that you're immoral, but uh, <laughs> what about economists generally? Can you walk us through what's going on in your article? Uh, yeah. So the, the book attracted me way back when, when I went to a conference, and certainly something that I've grappled with over time on where morality and economics uh, fit in. And so uh, I was always a big fan of um, Wall Street, uh, the original Gordon Gecko greed. Uh, actually, just, Justin just pointed to a little picture I have in my office, which I have tucked behind my door, which most people don't end up seeing. Uh, and he's certainly not uh, my idol. I've learned to come to uh, appreciate Bud Fox in that show. Uh, where his morality uh, eventually caught up with him, I think, and figured out uh, somewhat of a path to the good life as as he saw it. So, so yeah, the idea of of greed and capitalism and markets and the, and uh, at first glance, for many people, they don't seem to coincide with each other. And so, are are economists the purveyors of greed and and maybe some vices that would be against biblical principles? And so. I started digging into Haynes' uh, book, and it's a collection of essays that he did, and uh, found him to be influential in in many ways. Um, He did some writing. He was a theology um, professor. He's actually was it a pastor? I can't with the Lutheran Church, and so he had a master's. I think it was master's degree in theology, and then a master's degree in economics. So he had an interesting combination of both things. And so when we think about human behavior, are we acting immorally by always looking out for ourselves? So I guess that's the thing that caught my eye. And uh, so he has some interesting quotes. Maybe I'll throw a few out there and we can let Justin chime in with his philosophical brain. Um, One of them was, morality has more to do with intentions than with results. So the person who tried to run you down with his car is morally more culpable than the person who actually ran down uh, you with their car while trying to get to church. So morals can be different than outcomes with intentions. And I don't know, is that a fair, is that a fair shake at morals or what else would you add to that? It's, uh, it's a contentious claim because there are differing schools 
of thought on morality, there is what's called the deontological theories of morality, okay. which say that what matters more about an act is how it's generated, so like intentions. Okay. And then there are teleological accounts of morality, which say that an act is uh, moral or immoral based on the, broadly speaking, the consequences of that action. Oh, okay. So there are plenty of people who think that that's exactly wrong, uh, what Paine said, Paul's and that... Okay. But the deontological group would be with what Paul said. Yes, okay. and probably the foremost defender of that kind of view is Immanuel Kant. Oh, um, okay. So yeah, he was a big wig on, on that stuff. So with outcomes then, we see things happen in society, maybe it's income inequality or something else. I mean, what's the moral claim with that, do you think? Uh, where, where does that lie with outcomes that we have? Is the, is the question, what is the moral status of income inequality? Oh, kind of, I guess is one way to think about it. If, if we think markets create income inequality, which I think most people would agree to some degree, individual behavior, a product of that is unequal outcomes. Um, so does that make it immoral? Yeah, uh, you are definitely right that most people do think that markets and in particular individual freedom uh, will create will lead to inequality and that's just because every everybody's different you know with different skill sets and different appetites too and one of the approaches to questions about whether or not income inequality is just is a procedural approach which says let's look at each of the steps that led to inequality and if there's nothing wrong with any of those steps then there is nothing wrong with the outcome itself. Okay. So this approach um, is usually uh, you know, attributed to Robert Nozick in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, where he says, look, we can even start out where everybody has exactly the same amount of things. Yeah. Uh, but if they trade with each other and we end up with an unequal result, that inequality is only immoral if any of those trades were kind of coercive, that is, if there was a, what you would call a transfer of holdings that wasn't a just transfer of holdings. Okay. So not voluntary. Yeah, not okay. voluntary. Because uh, Nozick was a, he's a pro-market. Uh, oh yeah, he's a, right. he's yeah. a libertarian. Yeah. yeah. So um, that w this is his argument that any view which is, uh, which states that inequality is something that we have to remedy is going to necessarily involve restricting people's freedom to choose. So that's the view that, look, we don't like this result, therefore we're going to change it. And his point is, if it was arrived at freely, um, yeah. then there's nothing wrong with the result. And so that's kind of similar to this uh, view that, well, uh, morality isn't about outcomes, it's about uh, the motives, which... Payne was saying, right? This is the view that justice isn't about outcomes. It's about procedures. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm trying to think of, so do a lot of these arguments in philosophy more generally is we have, we have to agree to disagree because there's no proof. There's no logic there. What is the truth? <laughs> well, uh, a lot of arguments in philosophy, you know, like, we can argue over whether the correct account of ethics is deontological or teleological, right? But we can also argue that if we agree that ethics is teleological, that is, 
if we are both consequentialists, we yeah. can argue so outcomes over, matter. Yeah, if we argue that outcomes are the only things that matter, yeah. then we can argue about uh, how coherent either one of our views is. Right. So, you know the the gold standard in philosophy is a sound argument. That is an argument that's valid, where if it's if the premises are true, the conclusion follows necessarily, mm -hmm. and where the premises are true. So we know that the conclusion is true. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what a lot of philosophy ends up doing is trying to sketch out what are coherent and rational positions to take. Okay. So, um, and then it would boil down to the premises that you, uh, who's the either economist or philosopher that says, check your premises that they might be wrong. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Do you want to talk about? Yeah. Oh, Ayn Rand. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, uh, and premises of course matter, right? If yeah. you start out with the wrong premise, you're going to get the wrong conclusion. Right. But, um, you are right that for some philosophical position, deontology versus teleology, philosophers do sometimes, it's, it's hard to know what would count as proof that either of those is the correct approach. Here's a curveball for you, because you're just making me think, what's the appropriate age that we should be teaching our students some of this stuff? I mean, is this grade school, like little building baby steps of logical, basically logic, right? I mean, so obviously five-year-olds wouldn't be able to have the mental capacity to do it, but it, what's your thoughts on that? Like, where, where does this stuff belong? It's usually in college classes, but um, I don't know if many high school curriculums get into that. I think it should be taught in high school. Yeah. Um, personally, I think philosophy really helps you think clearly and precisely and I know that, you know, even when I was working, you know, at doing business to business sales, yeah. I had to think clearly and precisely a lot more than I had to summon my knowledge of ninth grade chemistry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think the the math, um, I'm, I've always been a believer in this, that the, the math helps you develop as some sort of logical thinking that you bring it through to an end, right? So that, that's a part of it is that we get that in high school. Well, pretty much all of our lives, we build on math going up. But I almost think many students would, would love to have more philosophy rather than just more math as to at least complement their thinking if the approach was, we're going to make you a better thinker. I think that's true. Um, I think there's a lot in common, especially, you know, I'm, I'm of the analytic bent in philosophy um, and analytic philosophy writing is, you know, a lot more like math with words. Mm -hmm. than, uh, right. Yeah. And that's what I'm thinking is math with words. Like math with concepts. Yeah. Um, and, and I think high school students would probably appreciate that. And maybe the world would be a better place if we had some sort of high school. Are you familiar? Do we have any, do high schools do philosophy like that? I took a rhetoric class when I was in high school. Um, okay. And we read... Which is building arguments, verbal, usually, right? Yeah, yeah, like we read a little bit of Plato and stuff, but it was also a, a Catholic high school. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think you find it a lot more in uh, schools that aren't, aren't public schools. Uh, you find a lot more of the, the philosophy classes. And one of the reasons why we... Uh, we don't see that very much. It's just 
you know, high schools don't hire philosophy right. professors. Right. You know, right. Um, I, I think that it, it would be great if they did. Well, I, I think the evolution of our economic content has been so great since I've been involved uh, or since I got involved, I guess, in 19. So I got basically started teaching full time in 1995. And I think back to my education and then, you know, what we're doing today, the content has been brought down to some basic levels where uh, even grade school kids and, and certainly middle school and high school can really get an appreciation for economics that is not supply and demand curve related. And so I think philosophy could maybe be similar. Maybe philosophy, uh, since we started our PPE major, so put a little plug in here, philosophy, politics, and economics. I mean, maybe there's something there of philosophy somewhat piggybacking on some of the economics that have been successfully into the high school curriculum, for instance. Yeah, and um, I think that would be phenomenal. And applied philosophy, I think, is something that should be more, more readily available. Um, no. And I know sometimes philosophers can be a snooty bunch who uh, <laughs> might object to, you know, applied philosophy. Um, well, ivory tower-ish. Yeah, but to the extent that we don't want philosophy programs to die, and we shouldn't. Or our nation to die. Yeah. My <laughs> critical thinking skills and all of that. Well, let me get back to Paul Heen for a sec. This kind of plays on it. So I, I wrote that, you know, he was really good at distinguishing between economic systems and morality of people. And so he gave this analogy of a of traffic system. An economic system that successfully coordinates the efforts of millions of people will necessarily work like an urban traffic system. Individuals will pursue their own goals, obeying general rules of the game in response to the net advantages they perceive in their immediate environment and adjusting those net advantages in the process so that they are more adequately accommodate the diverse wants and abilities of participants. So kind of, kind of a little, a little, Slippery there at the end um, in terms of little garbly gook, but I think his thoughts are that we're limited in some respect of the care and concern and morality, if you will, of how much we extend to strangers. So at the stoplight, I think he goes on in different places to say, if we were really trying to be moral about it, like who goes first at the stop sign, well, what I would have to listen to what the other driver is doing and say, well, what's, what's your concerns? Is it more important for you to go through this light rather than me? Um, so you go first, and that would be maybe the, the moral thing to do. Um, thoughts on that in terms of individual action and, and interplay and, and markets versus maybe people closer to you in the family? Yeah, I think that he's right that what we want out of an economic system is something that has the least amount of prescriptive rules possible. Right. Right. I mean, yes. That's, and that's what, what goes on it at a traffic stop, right? There's three, three commands, um, and it's, it doesn't take individual merit into account when we make those decisions. There are just these bright line rules that everyone has to follow. Yeah. Because the by having things too prescriptive, I guess Paul goes on to say here, it seems like we're sacrificing personal society by 
engaging in the market system where we have impersonal transactions just to get you know gains from trade but in reality we only have limits to the number of relationships and community and family and, and that that we can do and so the combination of impersonal relations if you will or exchanges and personal relations is part of how life works and keeping those in um, separate but related buckets I think could help people think about the better way to run society. Should we have, how big can our group be? Um, so with that, this looks like a good spot to take our break. So let's um, leave you with the cliffhanger here of how can we better design society? <laughs> I'll see you in a bit. The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at gortneyinstitute.org or call us at 785-248-2551. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Welcome back. So the cliffhanger, better design for society. Justin and I got it all figured out. And uh, we think we want to let people figure it out for themselves as long as they don't hurt other people when they're doing it. I thought you said you wanted to kill a lot of people. <laughs> no, no, that was a sidebar <laughs> oh, that we were yes. thinking of only under certain circumstances. No. So yeah, kind of planning for competition. I think recognizing that self-interest is not selfishness, as I've probably said a hundred times on this podcast in different ways. And so Adam Smith was really misunderstood, I think, uh, to a large degree for a hundred plus years. And I'm sure he's still somewhat uh, misunderstood on that, that he definitely was including other people's interests. And so then the question is, what other people? You know, is it all Americans that, that we should try to have a top-down plan that protects everybody and gives everybody safety net and equal outcomes for everybody? I mean, so... I think his view on it, as well as some other people like maybe uh, Edmund Burke, would be uh, it's the people close to you. And um, from the biblical standpoint, I, I hang my hat on uh, love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, why, did, why was the word neighbor put in there? My interpretation of that, which I can't say is 100% theologically sound, so I'm, I'm ready for emails or, or criticisms, but... You know, it didn't say love all people as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that was really pointing towards people close to you, like your neighbor, not maybe your physical next door neighbor, but those people that you come into contact with, the Good Samaritan on the road, 
love thy neighbor as thyself was a way of a relational thing when you come into physical close physical proximity or relationships whether it's coworkers or other things that that you start to have a different way of treating them um, whereas the person in a different state far far away I don't have that same obligation, I guess, in the same way at, at the personal level to take care of them as I would somebody that's maybe closer to me. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And that, uh, well, I've defended the idea of what I call permitted partiality, that you're, you're permitted ethically to be partial to people that you're close to. Okay. Uh, and yeah. I mean, is that your thing or is that a thing you got from some other author? Uh, I, I kind of like that. Permitted partiality. Yeah, my, it's, it's my principle of permitted partiality. Yeah. Principle of PPP. Yes. Uh, so not only is it purchasing power parity as it is in economics, <laughs> but now it's permitted. No, wait. Say the principle, principle of permitted partiality. Okay. The principle of permitted partiality. Okay. I like it. And then I also defend, uh, define three types of closeness, which... Okay. Uh, which seem to count. The first is uh, like emotional closeness. If you're just, so that includes friends, you know, family, etc. cetera. Uh -huh. The second is geographical closeness. I think you are permitted to, for instance, worry more about your own hometown than you are. Yeah. And then I also think temporal closeness. I think you're permitted to weigh the concerns of people who are alive now uh -huh. uh, ahead of people, uh, the concerns of people who will live 50 years or so. Ooh, I like that one. I hadn't really thought about that one being yeah. temporal. Because you find a lot of arguments, especially in in environmental ethics, okay. right. about the concerns of future 200, 200 years from now or whatever. Yeah, and I note that I'm not saying in either, in any of those cases that we are permit, that we ought to just completely disregard the sure. well-being of other people. Just yeah. we're permitted to be partial to those people who are closer to us. Yeah. And so, I mean, the love your neighbor thing too. I mean, it seems like we all know people who profess a love for humanity in the abstract while yep. they are screaming at their waitress. You know? <laughs> uh, right. And just are, are horrible to the people who are actually around them. And so one of the things that I think that really points to is that you should focus on doing good in the areas where it's most likely that your, uh, attend your, where that focus will pay off. Right. And, you know, that's your neighbor. You know, where you'll be people. more productive. You'll yeah. be a better steward, kind of back tying in stewardship. You'll be a better steward of God's resources if you're paying more attention to those who are closer to you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those are the people who you interact with on, yeah. Yeah, on a daily point. basis. And the human, human capacity is limited. We can't love everyone all the time uh, as much as we love those that are close to us. So, In fact, I mean, it doesn't even make sense to love everybody all no. the time. I mean, the whole point of taking a wedding vow, you're saying, I promise to treat you better than I treat everybody else. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. I... That's true. Yeah, so we kind of get into a little... I, it's promised partiality. Ethical there, right? contract almost. Yeah, it's like promised partiality. Yeah, not only permitted, but promised. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And so I, I, I think systems that... Or people that want to have everybody be the family is what I kind of think of when I think of uh, socialism or communism that we're going to have, you know, one big family and kind of figure things out really 
pushes the bounds of how far we can push that. Now, at the same time, a completely selfish view is not what Adam Smith had in mind, is not what other folks that have this idea of self-interest, uh, the, the interest of others was always important. I was, I was struck by Russ Roberts' comments on a, his podcast where he said, too often we think of ourselves as the star of our own life. Like we are the star of the show. And so all the focus goes on me, 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 or on us. And yes, we have relationships, but we're the star. And so um, how much better would the world be if we thought of ourselves more as being a part of a cast? And so sometimes, and maybe this, I, I'm extending beyond what, what Russ had said on the podcast, but, you know, maybe you think of yourself as an actor where sometimes I am a supporting actor and sometimes I'm the lead role and, and, think of episodes or whatever as you move into interactions that we really are dealing with people close to us and we're part of a cast more so than the star of the show always. Yeah. That's something that you know, the late David Foster Wallace wrote about in yet an essay called this is water, which was a commencement to I think Kenyon college's graduation ceremony. And he said, that part of the purpose of an education is attempting to realize this feature of reality, which he said, it's, you grow up, nothing is more certain to you than that you are the center <laughs> of the universe, right? Because you necessarily, you are the center of your own experiences. Right. So it does tempt you to think that you are the star and everybody else is a bit player in the movie that is your life, right? <laughs> right. But really... It's not just that sometimes we're, we're supporting actors. We are all supporting actors in everybody else's movie of their life. Right, and, right. Um, and once you realize that, that everybody else has their movie going on too. <laughs> right. Uh, Got a bunch of simultaneous movies playing out. So, um, so in Paul's theology, just to shift gears slightly, I think this is kind of related too, but um, as far as pushing back on homo economicus, like the rationally self-interested uh, economic man that's in our economic models. Um, when we look at the Bible, uh, do not lay up uh, for yourself treasures on earth, was Matthew 6. Blessed are the poor. None of this seems really consistent with consumption smoothing and 401k plans. And so, uh, you know, early Christians in Acts sold their possessions and distributed them to all, to anyone who had need. A lot of this seems contrary to what capitalism and markets are. And there's a lot of work that's been done by Paul and, and other writers to say, well, actually, that's not inconsistent. There was different things going on there. And so there's other areas where I think we have strong evidence of this self-interest, keeping other people's interest in mind uh, is, is a good way for the world to work. And so... The key ingredients that I keep trying to get into my principal students' heads is that competition is one of the secret sauces of this whole thing working that helps keep people checked, that gives them boundaries as we came out of our conflict divisions. Um, is it better to have, you know, a central planner with a lot of power that says do this, do that, or is it better to just have strong boundaries with a good police system and good courts? and allow people voluntary exchange. Because of diversified people, we're all different gifts and heights and weights and colors and talents and skills. And that, that diverse collection of our population 
is best if we just allow voluntary behavior and, and allow people to do what they think is best for themselves and best for their families and people that they're close to. So um, I think that's, that's an important part that uh, Paul contributed there. So on public choice stuff, Paul uh, had some interesting uh, things on, on uh, basically power going to, he wrote a lot of, against the Catholic Church, so sorry uh, for Catholics listening, um, but if you really check out what the Pope has said over time, sometimes they contradict each other, sometimes they're at issue with maybe um, some realities. Other popes have been great. So the popes have gone back and forth. And so in, in different parts, Paul pushed back uh, against some of the uh, encyclicals that the popes had done uh, over time. And so uh, that's not to uh, be a Catholic basher because I was raised Catholic and my mom might be listening. Hi, mom. Uh, she's Catholic. My brother's Catholic. So. <laughs> but I, I found that to be interesting. And I think where Paul was really saying is that if we believe that popes aren't gods, that popes are men and men have human constraints, then we should be awfully careful with how much power is entrusted with anyone, whether that be uh, in Rome or in government or other places. So I, I think the power shift was something he was good with. When was Paul uh, writing those? Just out of curiosity. Uh, the 70s, Okay, I think, roughly. Um, yeah, so 70s and into the 80s. I mean, he, I can't remember when he died. It might have been 86 or maybe into the 90s so i think it was in the that time for the as far as book writings yeah okay yeah so that was kind of good i thought his warnings there and and relating that to the church as well as um just government and of course over the years government and church would be one and the same and so that uh historically resonated resonated with me um i thought the conscious capitalism stuff so Paul was uh, more in line with Milton Friedman that uh, we shouldn't be so worried about social responsibility. And I don't know, what do you do in your business ethics class with that? What's, what's your thought? So Friedman's classic article is uh, the social responsibility of businesses to increase profits. Yeah. I think that's the title. It's right. It's, yeah. If yeah. not that, it's something. Their objective is to, they're doing what they should if they're increasing profits. Yeah. That that yeah. exhausts the social responsibility of uh, yeah. a business. Right. And his argument is that when you are the CEO of a business, you are working with other people's money. Yeah. You are the steward of the shareholders' money. Yeah. And the charge that shareholders give you is increased profits. And so uh, whatever you do in your capacity as CEO ought to be to increase those profits and if you are doing something else at the expense of increasing profits, you are using other people's money for something that they don't authorize you to do. Yeah. And the argument against that is, first of all, you know, it's not yours to do whatever you want with. You right. are acting more like a government. Yeah. And right. not to say that governments should, uh, different people would say governments shouldn't act that way either, but yeah. yes. Uh, he would like say, uh, you know, Milton Friedman says you are acting kind of like the government does with taxes, which is we know how to spend this money to push the things that we want to push. Yeah. And secondly, he says, you're probably not going to be very, there's, 
if you're the CEO of a pizza company, there's no reason to think you have some sort of expertise on social justice. Yeah. You have an expertise, hopefully, on pizza, on pizza delivery <laughs> systems, right? right? So not only are you not authorized to do it, there's no reason to think you'd be very good that at it. That you have the knowledge. Either, yeah. yeah. And to the extent that you are doing that, you are you, you are subtracting from the area where you have knowledge and, and permission to Where do you'd help with gains from trade yeah. if uh, you stuck with what you were good at. Yeah, and Friedman also says, look, if we are in a well-functioning market, in a well-functioning market economy, and you are selling things to the public, every item that the public buys from you is something that they want more than that money that they are willing to trade for it. Yeah, so back that's, to the voluntary part yeah. that we were talking so about. So they gain from each of those transactions. Right. And if profit is you know, the price that you sell for minus the cost of production. And competition, I might throw in my competition word, and competition keeps that price at a level to where people have other opportunities to buy from elsewhere. So that profit is wholesome in a way. <laughs> yeah, well, it's going to the shareholders who yeah. invested the money right. um, to, I think in the capital my, my big part uh, or uh, opinion on that is that charitable giving belongs with individuals, kind of period, in my mind, uh, both from maybe a biblical standpoint and otherwise. So here's where I'm going with that. Corporations are collections of people. So instead of having a manager who wants to do some donations and use the corporate funds like you were just all describing, really the way society should function is that it's people's money. Those people invested it, as you say, they expected a rate of return. And now when those people get those returns, they now can give the higher profits than what they would be to where they think is a good place to donate. Yes. So, and that's what Friedman thinks too, yeah. right? He thinks the social responsibility of the CEO is to increase the profits, yes. is to shareholders, but yeah. the social responsibility of shareholders might well be to their other, to their fellow humans yeah. as they see fit. However they see fit. Um, yeah. Charity belongs with individuals. Yes. Yes. And so... Well, I think that looks like a good place to wrap for today. Um, so thank you all for listening. Uh, if you want, you can check out Liberty Fund Classics uh, and look up Russ McCullough. That's where that article is. We'll try to put it into the show notes as well. Um, but other than that, um, thank you all. And if you feel so inclined, like what you're hearing, please give us that five-star rating. That helps more and more people find our our details uh, as we explore faith and economics other than that be fruitful and multiply thanks <laughs>